just who is trying to let Ohio vote, religion in the workplace, and the future of gun control in Ohio. These topics are more this week on Columbus on the Record. From the Battelle studio at WOSU at COSI, this is Columbus on the Record, WOSU-TV's weekly analysis of the top stories affecting Central Ohio. Joining Mike Thompson this week, Laura Bischoff, State House reporter for the Dayton Daily News. Kathy Kandiski, State House reporter for the Columbus Dispatch. Sam Gresham of Common Cause Ohio. And Michael Miller, attorney and former Franklin County prosecutor. The feud between Secretary of State Jennifer Bruner and the group pushing for a November vote on racetrack slot machines landed in the Ohio Supreme Court this week. The organization called LetOhioVote.org convinced the court to put on hold, for now, Bruner's investigation into the group's finances. Bruner and others want to know who is funding that campaign. Laura Bischoff. What's this fight all about? This is a very secret organization well, as far as know, the money is concerned. They, they complied with the campaign finance laws in that they said, here's our donor, or here are our donors. It just so happens that the donor is New Models out of uh, Virginia, and it's a, it's a $1.55 million. And so you don't know who's behind New Models. And, um, you know, I think that in the court of public opinion, I think that Let Ohio Vote's going to end up losing because they're not looking very transparent. And... Um, but we'll see how the Supreme Court handles it. Let Ohio Vote has been successful in the Supreme Court. They, they managed to get uh, the right to go ahead and, and push for a referendum. And, um, you know, they're, I'm sure they're going to fight to the, to the, end, the bitter end on this as well. Of course, the, the speculation is in the, in the questions are, is out-of-state big gambling outfits funding this because they don't want the competition from the racetracks? And voters should have a right to hear that. I, I, I don't think it's any, any su uh, surprise to anybody that they may be doing it. I can't think of many people who would be interested in doing it other than them. There may be some religious groups that would want to do that, but uh, I, I don't think they would conceal themselves. Now, uh, the question to me, is it a question of the transparency of the law, or is it a misinterpretation of the law? I'm not a lawyer, yes. so <laughs> I don't for, know. For an attorney, <laughs> it's one and the same, isn't Lawyers it? Lawyers can disagree on that, too. <laughs> But I think the key question is uh, they feel that this is not the Secretary of State's position. Mm -hmm. They just have to report the things that Laura in indicated. And if the Secretary of State finds there's something uh, wrong with that, then I think it's the Elections Commission they feel should have the responsibility. And uh, they won before, I think, maybe six to one was the vote last yeah, time. And I see it was this time, too. Mm -hmm. So and so far as who's supporting it, I think the last uh, referendum we had uh, in November under the gambling, it was pretty obviously who was supporting and, and who wasn't it. And I don't think there's much difference in this one either. I know Ken Blackwell's former spokesman, the former Secretary of State's former spokesman, Carl Laparo, was with this group. So there is, it sounds like there is some conservative anti-gambling folks, at least on this People effort. have an idea who, who's, who it is, mm -hmm. but, the, but you don't know for sure. And, and whether they're complying with the law, maybe, probably, but they're not, it kind of flies in the face of what this disclosure law is all about, and that is to know who's funding these campaigns. With this kind of a setup, you really don't know who's funding it. We can guess, and we're probably right, but we don't know. Okay. Let's get to our next topic. It involves the Bureau of Workers' Compensation. Remember them? Well, they're back in the news. The BWC is the agency that was scandalized a few years ago by risky investments in rare coins. 
Well, now controversy swirls around a panel set up to keep an eye on the insurance fund for injured workers. As first reported by the Associated Press, Director Virginia McKearney was accused of pushing her evangelical Christian faith on her employees, leading them in prayer and giving them God at Work CDs. Last month, she fired her staff and they charged discrimination, something McKearney now denies. Kathy Kandiski, what do you make of this? Well, it's, it's uh, you know, anytime an entire staff gets fired, in this case, I think it's three people, but mm -hmm. it's the entire staff, you begin to wonder who really is at fault here. Um, of course, the, the, the head of the, of the group denies any wrongdoing. That'll have to be determined. But based on what some of these employees are saying, it seems like there's some really serious issues here about religious discrimination, harassment on the job. You know, I, I don't think, I think most people would agree that it's kind of inappropriate to inject that kind of religion into the workplace, especially a government workplace. I, I also think it's a question of um, a, a, a part of how do you handle this type of stuff in the workplace? As an administrator myself, um, it's different when there's an individual staff person versus the leader of the department and how that uh, is communicated to the staff. The idea of the CDs and the praying together as alleged by the group, mm -hmm. I think sets up a whole different set of, uh, of issues. You can believe what you want, but when I'm required to pray and required to analyze a CD for a discussion, I think it opens up all sorts of questions. I think the courts would agree with you, Sam. If, they, if the, uh, the, the the claims that they're making, if they are if they are true, regardless of uh, the reason behind it and the good faith this person may have, I, I think the courts would side with you that you absolutely cannot do that. Is this just one more? I mean, the, we thought that BWC was set. This they had this panel <laughs> was overseeing it. The rare coins, the beanie babies, all done. The investments. Here they are again. I think they're just all, it's going to be cyclical because, you know, it's a huge agency. They handle a lot of money. They handle a lot of complaints and issues that, you know, uh, there's a lot of dispute about who's right and wrong. You know, it's just one of those agencies that's probably going to find itself in, uh, you know, dealing with things like this frequently. Not in this, but issues. I'm a little unclear, Kathy. Maybe you know, um, who was supposed to be overseeing this uh committee or commission that was set up? I think it d the legislature established them yep. and they advised both the legislature and the bureau itself. So I would imagine they're overseen by the legislature. Yeah, my understanding was it's kind of like a check on their work. So they were sort autonomous of a, in yeah, some regard? Yeah, kind of the Senate, it seemed like. It, Bill Batchelder was the person who recommended her for this post. Apparently she had right. a very good record up until this, 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 these allegations. But so. there is some irony in the fact that the, the group that was set up to kind of make sure things were going okay at the troubled bureau is now the focus of trouble. trouble. <laughs> 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 um, <laughs> now th there's, there's talk of privatizing the BWC and, and the, the she's apparently stolen one of the Democrats uh, lines that this is Satan's work, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I am a Christian. <laughs> I don't know how you interpret that. And Do I don't wouldn't know Democrats say that that's privatizing a big state agency would be safe? Where's right? your evidence? <laughs> <that's> <laughs> <important>. <laughs> Is there a chance down the, down the road with the budget crisis that BWC could be privatized? Is that, is that a possibility down the road? I, I think anything is possible, but uh, the political reality is it's such a political animal. I don't see that in the foreseeable future right now. That would be a radical departure from what the history has been thus far, but anything's possible.
I think you might see other things privatized as well. I mean, there's been talk over the years about privatizing the turnpikes, mm -hmm. privatizing lots of aspects of government, and as the budget crunch, you know, that we're facing in the whole becomes worse and worse and, you know, there's fewer solutions, those kind of things surface. How does this end? Do you think the hot just Will she will will she survive the directive? Will she? Survive? I don't think she's going to no. keep her job. If if all these allegations prove true, right. I think she'll lose her job, and the three will get their jobs back. Right. Okay. If they're affirmed by the court, I believe the same thing. And we're going to pay. We're going to pay a lot of money to somebody. Yeah. Well, although I notice, I think in their application application is the right word, but in their complaints, they really uh, were seeking uh, something uh, to to denote they're leaving as a voluntary separation as opposed to a firing, something yeah. like that. Mm -hmm. So maybe they've decided that. They want to be. They don't want to be there anyway. Yeah. Okay. Our next topic: Three yeah. years after it was implemented, Ohio's statewide smoking ban in public pl public places is getting headlines. First, it was it's now costing the state two million dollars a year to enforce it. Then comes word that complaints of smoking ban violations are down, and a Franklin County judge says Ohio is picking on the wrong people when enforcing the ban. Judge David Kane says individual smokers should be targeted not restaurants and bars. Mike Miller, it's cost $2 million over the course of the past three years, not $2 million a year. But as a former prosecutor, have you, did you ever do a cost-benefit analysis of any any uh, crime that or, or law you were charged with enforcing or prosecuting? Uh, no, Mike, I can't say that I did. Uh, and, and, you know, I like to think, uh, for the most part, that at least the criminal justice system, it's really kind of tough to tie it to money. I suppose all of it is losers, and yet we've got to have some form where you're going to have just, just chaos out there. I, the, the money spent in there, uh, two million or whatever it was, does not seem to me to be a great deal of money. Uh, the issue itself, banning smoking and people's right to smoke and not to smoke and second party smoke and all of that, it, it's going to be around forever. There are a segment of society that's very much opposed to any intervention on the part, on the part of government. And, and I suspect it's not quite as dramatic, but it's going to be something like the death penalty, that it's always going to be out there. You're going to have uh, people who are very firm in their opinions one way or the other, they're for it, they're against it, and so forth. Uh, I don't think this policy was ever put into effect in order to make money. We're going to take more money in fines than we are to, to do it. Uh, I think it's always been a health issue, and uh, who knows uh, whether that's been successful or not. Uh, hopefully if it has, but if it has been, how do you prove it? How do you prove that XYZ didn't come up with some disease that we would have all paid for and, and now they don't have it? It's very difficult. Yeah. But I, 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 to me, that's not a lot of money what they've spent. The strategy that's been applied here is moving from the West to the East. Uh, my review and preparation for this program indicates first time I saw it was in Las Vegas. The same question was raised. Uh, who's responsible, the owner of the establishment, or should you target the parishioner of the establishment, and uh, there's a Supreme Court ruling in Vegas affirming uh, the state's uh, right to do that. Here, they took the other position. Um, I, I think the appeals court is probably going to wrestle with this. I don't know how far Dr. Jackson and uh, A.G. Uh, uh, Cordray are willing to take this issue, but I, I, I think Mike is right. Until we sift through and affirm the law, and the procedure for enforcing the law, we're going to have this constant back and forth, back and forth, nickel and diming this thing until it's almost uh, um, meaningless. I think that, though, I think that um, Dr. Jackson and, and um, Rich Cordray should keep in mind that 
um, you know, the voters passed this overwhelmingly. It was 59 to 41 percent, and uh, and that was in the face of having a second uh, conflicting and confusing issue. And the voters figured it out, and they said, you know, this is what we want. Um, and I agree with Mike that I don't think that $2 million to enforce this over three years is a significant amount of money. I mean, how much do we spend to enforce traffic laws uh, over the course of three years? Um, and, um, you know, the, the number of complaints has, has tapered off. It started, I think there's been a total of maybe 49,000 complaints, but they've tapered off. I think that most businesses are complying, but I think there are some uh, rebel businesses that really think that uh, Smokers is sort of their customer base that has been taken away from them, and they, they're going to push it as far as they can. Are you surprised there's, there's still fights going on over this? Because, you know, Columbus, it's been, a, it's been more than three years if you look at Columbus's smoking ban. I mean, the restaurants, I've, I've, I know the bowling alleys were worried that they were going to lose a lot of business when the smoking ban uh, was in place. I went to a bowling alley about a, a month ago. The place was packed. I mean, it was, there was waiting lines at 11 o'clock at night for lanes. Well, so they weren't getting hurt by the smoking See, ban. See, when you get used to going into establishments without smoking, mm -hmm. yeah. you go into an establishment that where with there it? is smoking, you mm -hmm. really, really notice it, and it, it is, it's, it's really quite, has quite a negative effect on you, especially if you're not a smoker. Mm -hmm. and, you know, going into restaurants and bars here in the Columbus area, and then going to someplace like Vegas, where you walk out of any place and you mm -hmm. just, you know, your clothes just reek, uh, you know, people get used to it, and I think there's a lot of public opinion and public sentiment kind of pushing pushing the ban along. But I agree with Laura. There's some places that just forget it. Mm. That's our base. That's our customer. Having been one of those persons, I have a bias. I spent 11 years as an advocate changing this thing. And I was requested one time to go to a bowling alley to speak on behalf of it <laughs> when we still had the smoking ban. So I know, and uh, the people who, as Michael alluded to, who figures their right to be able to smoke any place are very rigid and hard on this thing. And uh, you're right, too. I went to a couple of states just recently where they don't have no smoking. And man, it's a big difference. You know, the, the adult smoking rate in Ohio is 20.2%. Uh, as of, as of 08. And so, you know, it's only one in five adults that are smoking. And so there's 80, I think there's 80% of people or close to it who would, you know, want the indoor smoking ban to continue. What about this idea of issuing smoking licenses, Michael? Where a restaurant could, or a bar could apply for a license, pay a certain fee, and then <laughs> get their, their patrons would be allowed to smoke. Is that a well, uh, could it work or to work? Uh, would it work for a small uh, segment? Sure, but it looks like the legislature has never yeah. been in favor of that type of thing. When they've tried to have certain other facilities, private clubs and so forth, they've said no. And I, I think once you open that door, uh, uh, it starts a flood. So I, 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 could you do it practically? I suppose, but I don't think that'll ever occur. Plus, it was a workplace safety issue too. That was kind of the crux of it. Correct. Secondary smoking. Yeah. So. But does anyone question the whole idea that you don't ha you don't hold the business owner accountable? I mean, you kind of look at like underage drinking. Mm -hmm. Who whose job is it to card people, patrons when they come into a bar? You know, and then the police come once in a while and you know nab them. If if the businesses aren't responsible. I mean, we can't possibly police all these places. Well, some common sense stuff, though, though, you know, Kathy, I think you, if the four of us walk into a bar of, uh, you know, 60 people or 80 people, whatever, 
and and 20 of them, 20% are sitting here smoking. That's one thing. If we walk in and Sam and I walk back to the to the men's room and there's a guy in the stall taking a cigarette, <laughs> well, that's another thing to turn on and charge him. I mean, I mean, you know, there's sort of a common sense look at that. <laughs> yeah, but that that's a good parallel argument. When yeah. I thought about this, that was the same parallel <laughs> argument. Yeah. I, who's responsible? Is there supposed to be a cop to tell that kid not to drink that, or yeah. is the bartender yeah. responsible oh. for that? Yeah, who is? Yeah, if they have all those Altoid cans in the bar, <laughs> they can use as ashtrays. I'll tell you though, this is a lot easier than figuring out if somebody meets is twenty one or not. Yeah, yeah, you know, it is. You, you, you yeah. see him, you see him smoking a cigarette. That's yeah. plain, something lights plain up, and simple. It? That's yeah, right. something lights up. <laughs> Let's get to our fourth topic. <laughs> Cities in Ohio, like Columbus, were the first to adopt those smoking bans. They were also the first to impose tighter restrictions on guns. But those restrictions have been challenged recently, first by the Ohio State Legislature, which passed a law saying gun laws must be uniform across city borders. And this week, the U.S. Supreme Court heard a challenge to <coughs> Chicago's gun regulations. Sam Gresham, should cities be allowed to say we're banning handguns? I think cities should be allowed to regulate the type of weapons that can be found in that jurisdiction. And hopefully the court will end up saying that it is said that. Washington, D.C. was, and there's a court case in Chicago, yeah. uh, McDonald versus Chicago, and then there is the city of Cleveland is weighed in, and our city attorney is weighed in. I think uh, home rule and something about state rights uh, should, and I'm not a home rule or a state's right guy, so let me, let me be on top of that. But they should have the ability to regulate what types of handguns are, 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 are in their community. Um, now, whether they should totally abandon all weapons, I don't think the Second Amendment will allow you to do that. But regulate, yes, they should be allowed to regulate what type of weapons are allowed in their community. But doesn't that infringe upon somebody's right to carry? If you, if you go from uh, Worthington to Westerville to Gehanna, and they each have, there's three different versions of, you know, what, how you can be carrying your weapon. Mm -hmm. It almost um, makes it so that you, you can't possibly do it. You have to memorize, you know, hundreds of different Yeah, but the counter-argument to that, if I went to Utah a few years ago, I had to buy a membership in the club to get a drink. But that's Utah. So mm -hmm. when I go to Utah to get the drink, I know what the rules are. So when I, like Dodge City, or, or he said, check your guns. But down the street <laughs> in Yuma, you didn't have to check your guns. It's just the rules of the city. And, and, and there are valid reasons. I'm not going to be a, a flippant about that. Where you have higher concentrations of population and you got more people with weapons, that's a problem. Mm -hmm. It really is a problem. Um, I got a little concern about uh, the concealed carry, and most people who didn't read the article, the number one increase in concealed carry was Franklin County. Mm -hmm. I don't think most people realize that. Nobody would think Franklin County. And to go from uh, 45,000 one year to 56,000 the next year, but God bless you, there are only 200,000 people who have the permits. I think, I, well, I've heard a lot about that increase kind of being driven by fears that after Obama was elected that there may be some changes in gun law, there may be some restrictions, and that prompted people to kind of rush out and get their permits while they could. That's, that's one thing, but I think that also there, there were changes in the state law over the last um, year and a half or two years uh, that make it easier to carry from, from city to city because the, the locals are not allowed to have a law that is more... Uh, stringent than the state law, and also they made it easier um, for carrying in your car. So I think that um, some of those barriers that some people they say, ah, I'm not going to go through the whole course and pay the money for the permit and the rest of it if I can't do X, Y, and Z. Well, now they can do X, Y, and Z. But yes, you're right, some of them are also um, concerned about how Obama might um, right. impact things.
But I think, too, that, that that's accurate, but I, I also look at the strength of the gun lobbies. I mean, just look at us, and, and let's go back here, the four of us going back, say, 20 years ago, and envisioning states in the country having a right to conceal and carry. We're all going to be armed walking around if we choose to do that or go through a course. I mean, I, I, I would not have believed it. You know, maybe a couple of the states down south or something like that, and it seems to be almost everywhere. And if they've got that sort of power, which indeed they do have, I don't see you're going to have any great great restrictions unless we're talking, you know, howitzers or machine guns or something of that nature. Right. It seems to be here Like to Sam stay. said, some restrictions, but no bans, no, yeah. no yeah. real serious. Yeah. It kind of puts Richard Cordray and, and Ted Strickland, both supporters of gun rights. Second Amendment rights. Um, at odds with big city mayors in Cleveland yeah. and Columbus, and that they want these restrictions. Cordray and in Strickland, not necessarily and, and, so. And everybody is valid. I mean, if you're in Chicago, New York, and you're a city prosecutor or a police chief or the mayor, you're concerned about a lot of people carrying around. There are enough illegal guns as it is. But I think the false premise of concealed carry is that it's going to mitigate or eliminate or prevent a crime. There's very little evidence that says that that supports that contention. Most of the evidence says people who shoot people are domestically related. They don't prevent people from robbing a store or anything. They shoot their cousins, their friends, their wives, their husbands. And I don't know if concealed carry is going to do what people say. They always say it's a defensive circumstance. I have very little evidence to support that. Okay, our last topic. It sounded a bit like a stump speech for passenger rail. This week at the Columbus Metropolitan Club, ODOT Director Jolene Molitoris touted the benefits of passenger trains linking Ohio's major cities. She said it will make Ohio greener and make Ohio's cities more attractive to young professionals. Sam, you moved here as a young professional, right? Mm -hmm. Did you move because of the train? No, sir. <laughs> I came in the early 70s and the train had no impact on me whatsoever. But, but you know... There's an argument that can be made from the green perspective. There's an argument that can be made from the carbon use and the dependency on foreign oil for the train. But I, I think Mike made a point earlier. It's not about lobby. I mean, logic, it's about the lobby and how that lobby affects the ability of the train. Now, the controlling board ultimately will make a decision about this $400,000 that comes down from the, uh, the stimulus package. But the whole idea of having trains is a political football. It's between the petrol people, the car people, and a variety of other people. Now, what's in the best interest? Green's okay. Reducing petrol's okay. Lack of dependence on foreign oil. All seem to make sense to me. I mean, what doesn't seem, what isn't okay is the cost to the taxpayers. And I think that's the biggest stumbling block yeah. is, is okay, we get the train built. But how are we going to pay to maintain it? You know, and there's been over the years problems with Amtrak and having to got taxpayers having to subsidize that. And I think the the big kind of the, the flip side of all that you're talking about is just that: who's going to foot the bill once the stimulus money that gets it built for us is gone? Sure, because the operating costs are going to be at least seventeen million dollars a year. And you also kind of wonder with the frequency of the trains, how uh, convenient and appealing will it be for people? to go from Cleveland to Cincinnati or, or, um, or Colum Columbus out to, to, to Cleveland you know, or Cincinnati. You're, when you're in a city that, that there's good trains, like Chicago or whatever, yeah. you walk up on a platform and you wait five minutes and the next train's there. That's, that's not what this is going to be. This is going to be, you know, six times a day or whatever. And one of the, one of the things I heard that I thought was m most concerning was 
the fact that if you wanted to go see like a, uh, a game up in Cleveland or a game in Cincinnati, that there wouldn't necessarily be a train to bring you back. No, it may yeah. be too late. And then you're talking about an overnight, and all of a sudden, how convenient is that? Yeah. Are they selling it the wrong way and trying to link the three cities? I know that's what, that's what it will do, but it also will link Columbus to take a train to Chicago or to Minneapolis or to St. Louis. We talk a lot about going to Seattle, going to uh, Cleveland to see a game, where you, but you can take the train instead of flying to Chicago. But still, you're going to have to go all the way up to Cleveland and then all the yeah. way over, I, th I think. Yeah, you have to go to Cleveland or Cincinnati. You, you well, know, 39 miles an hour, that, if that's the average, that's, that's going to just yeah. still. I, you know, I'm sort of a romanticist that's on what this. Stops. That's <laughs> right. But when but still, I was little uh, on a fast horse and we had our train station downtown, and yeah. I mean 10, 11 years old. Get on the train with a friend of mine, and we'd go yeah. up to Cleveland. They'd drop you off at like the right field wall. We'd see a game, get back, yeah. and come down. Our parents would pick us up, and they did the same thing in the old Crosley Field. Yeah. And those days are gone. I, I yearn for them. I wish we had them, and, and I would love to have this train do those things. But I, I don't, just don't think it is. And economically, okay. as much as I'd love to have it, I don't think it's going to work. We'll have to leave it there. <laughs> More to come. <laughs> Time now for our weekly off-the-record comments from our panel. Final thoughts, predictions for the weeks ahead. Laura, you're up first. Okay, uh, both Sarah Palin and Arnold Schwarzenegger are in uh, Columbus this weekend in Ohio, and uh, my prediction is that they're going to um, make a lot of money. Will, they, will, they, will their paths cross? I don't think so, but I'm, I'm not sure. That'd be kind of cool. Kathy? I'm predicting Sarah Palin's going to get that reality show she's shopping. I don't know if you heard about that this week, but mm -hmm. she's been in talking to a couple networks about a reality show about her and her uh, her life in Alaska, and I think we're going to be watching that next season. Sam? Uh, Cleveland Cavaliers are going to win the NBA championship. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and finally, like <laughs> I get to my sport, Sam. <laughs> Back to the trades between Cleveland and Cincinnati. As we speak today, Cleveland and Cincinnati are playing each other in an exhibition, and I'm sad to say that I'm afraid neither one of those teams are going to do very well this year. We'll do keep where we are until we do something about restructuring baseball with their salary problems. Wait till next year, right? Wait till next year. Not even, not even April yet. We haven't yet, started yet, huh? <laughs> um, we are on late starting next week, so that's a real good reason to check out our website, WOSU.org. There you can get streaming video of all of our programs. You can also become our friend on Facebook. You can check out our blog and also get a preview of the topics we're going to discuss each week. All of that at our website, wosu.org slash C-O-T-R. And a plug, Monday night, 8 o'clock on WOSU TV, a terrific documentary featuring trains and Union Station. It's a profile of the Short North, part of our Columbus Neighborhood Series, which we're launching this week, Monday, 8 o'clock on WOSU. Well worth your time. For our crew, for our panel, I'm Mike Thompson. Have a good week. <laughs>